You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mission Lab, episode 89, entitled Beauty is Truth. Before I proceed into my um, topic today, I want to share a couple things. I was thinking a little bit more about my last episode, and um, yeah, it probably was kind of depressing. Um, but, you know, the thing about our, our podcast is that it is called Mission Lab, so it's kind of detailing in real time, our discoveries and our journey as we go. And so it's going to be pretty raw and there's sometimes going to be more questions than answers. If you've been with us long enough, hopefully you've picked up on that. Um, what I, what I kind of feel a little self-conscious about is the fact that, you know, some of the things we shared a few years ago were like, Oh, okay. Maybe it wasn't as straightforward as we thought it was. And there's more to learn here. So I always want to hold my views with an open hand and recognizing that there's always more to learn. And um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Hopefully I didn't lose like half of my audience because it was so depressing. But the other thing is you might hear a, a lawnmower in the background. That's because my neighbor is mowing their lawn, I guess, which is a good sign because uh, that means it's still kind of lawn mowing season. Um, with all that said, I want to get into what I want to share today. So um, this topic might find its way into a lot more future episodes because it's a topic that I'm going to be spending, at least I anticipate spending a lot of time um, thinking about and researching and studying, and I can get into that more later in the future, but um I don't think it's just merely an academic exercise. It's extremely relevant to kind of our um, thinking as to what it means to be the church and what it means to be on mission and what it means to be disciples in 2020, the 21st century, which is its own unique um, context. And so... Yeah, this one is called Beauty is Truth. Now, the impetus for this these musings today uh, derives from a little booklet that was published in 1848 entitled History of All the Religious Denominations in the United States. Okay, published in 1848. Now, you're thinking to yourself, Okay, we're living in 2020. What does that have to do with, you know, what does 1848 have to do with now? And I have never been more convinced that we learn so much about our present situation as we do by studying history. And um, yeah, there's just so much insight to gain, realizing that like a lot of the things we face today are not new to us, even though, as I said, we are in a new context. But anyway, so this booklet, um, this book, I should say, um, history of all the religious denominations in the United States. It was a groundbreaking book 
because it invited 53, 53 uh, kind of denominations slash quote unquote sects, S-E-C-T-S, uh, 53 of these religious communities to to write about and to explain their particular uh, religious views um, to the world, to the United States. So uh, again, there was people all the way from you know Catholics to Free Will Baptists to uh, the Re- German Reformed Church to the Disciples of Christ to Adventists, and by that I do not mean Seventh-day Adventists because Seventh-day Adventists did not officially organize until 1861, 1863. Um, these were the original Adventists that Seventh-day Adventists kind of evolved from, um, and they, of course, were uh, started by William Miller. And in this book specifically, Josiah Litch, who would be a name that probably many Seventh-day Adventists would recognize um, a very important, influential uh, Millerite, Advent believer. Uh, so, so all these different denominations, and they were invited to explain to the world what it is that they believe. The, the theory was that, you know, if, they, if each group could share from their own perspective what they believe, it's, it would be a little bit more fair of a treatment rather than having one person write about them all and critiquing them and maybe misrepresenting what they actually believe. So so this book, yeah, it came out. It was groundbreaking, 1848. It cost, you know, the equivalent of like $75 today. So it was a little hefty price tag. But it, it apparently made some, um, you know, inroads with various religious people within uh, 19th century kind of Christianity. And what is most interesting to me, two things. Um, Number one is that not surprisingly of all of the 53 um, sort of what we'll call them denominational autobiographies of all of the 53 denominations, uh, there were major, major disagreements, kind of doctrinal, theological disagreements, which which is not surprising to us. Now, today in 2020, you know, there was 53 back then. I'm sure there were more, but there were 53 that they featured of the major kind of movements within 19th century Christianity, um, American Christianity, I should say. Uh, now, today, there would be hundreds, thousands. You know, there's now the phenomenon of non-denominations, which are kind of really denominations, but they're smaller, so forth and so on. But all of these 53 denominations, um, they had major disagreements with one another. So, again, that's not surprising. However, what um, what was also remarkable is that Almost without exception, um, except for maybe like the the Roman Catholic community, maybe a few other kind of what we would call reformed uh, uh, traditions, but almost without exception, every denomination claimed that they, quote, had no creed but the Bible. And they proposed that they were the correct interpreters of scripture. And they, they said, you know, only, uh, 
if if these other groups took the Bible and the Bible alone as their source of authority, they would see the same things we see. And so there was this there was this um, presumption that each group was, of course, and again, this is not surprising. There was per, a presumption that each group had that they were the correct interpreters of scripture and they wanted to have no other creed but the bible now it's kind of interesting i was i was uh, uh hanging out with a few friends of mine recently um and they were sharing with me something that i myself had discovered um and that was so they were watching a documentary that was kind of critiquing a certain um kind of uh, movement within American Christianity today, and they were w- critiquing this uh, a movement. And and my friends who were watching the video, the documentary, said, "You know what was really remarkable is this video, this 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 film, this documentary was produced by like Christians, and it was produced by non Seventh Day Adventist Christians, but you could have mistaken." them for Seventh-day Adventists. I said, well, you know, why is that? And, and they said, well, I mean, they were quoting scripture so very much. And the insinuation was, and, I, and I, I'm not at all like pushing back against them because I like, I, I have the same like surprise, uh, you know, when I, when I first started kind of stepping out into the wider world of Christianity, I had the same surprise that wow, these other people actually do believe in the Bible. I I was kind of always kind of implicitly taught to believe growing up that my particular community of faith, which is to say the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I was kind of led to believe that Seventh-day Adventists were the only Christians that really took the Bible seriously. Like, if you want to know what the Bible says, then you come to us because we're the ones who take it seriously. And um, like, I thought that was a unique feature. Like, I thought that was a unique self-identity. I thought that um, like we were the only ones. And even in our, our, um, our statement of beliefs, our fundamental beliefs, in the preamble, it says, we have no creed but the Bible. The Bible is our only creed. And I thought, oh, that's what separates, you know, Seventh-day Adventists. It's like, we we don't have those creeds. We don't require people to adhere to some extra biblical beliefs. And, and then I came to discover, wait a minute. Actually, if you look at most what I would call, broadly speaking, evangelical Christians today, um, most have the same posture and attitude. They say, we have no creed but the Bible. We only take the Bible and the Bible alone is our authority. And we really think it's important. So it's kind of like, wait a minute. Like, I thought we had this exclusive claim to being the only ones who claim faithfulness to scripture. And we say, you know, if you want to know what the Bible means, you come to us because... You know, we're the ones who take it, you know, we're the ones who actually read it. And that is a very, number one, it's a very arrogant claim and posture. And number two, it's just not right. Um, there are people, uh, 
within the wider Christian world who maintain that they are every bit as faithful to scripture as I do. And so, uh, you know, as I was reading this little book, this, this book from 1844, and I'm confronted with that, um, that reality, which again is still present today. I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh man, this is, this is interesting because I, um, I don't know what to do with this. And um, I realized that there was kind of a few different ways that I could relate to this idea. And the first way is, um, I think what a lot of people who are more conservative in their approach to Christianity, a lot of them would tend to to go this first way. And that is to say something along the lines of, look at all these people who disagree about the Bible and there's lots of confusion. There's lots of, of variance in their opinions and uh, they claim to believe scripture, but obviously they're mistaken about these things. And thank God that we came along, our faith, our, our community of faith came along so that we could set everyone straight. Like, oh man, aren't they so lucky that finally our group came along and uh, we, we get to like tell them, actually, this is really what scripture says. This is actually, you know, you guys are mistaken. You're, you're, you're disagreeing about it. You are arguing about it. But oh man, like, kind of like the Pharisee and the publican. He's like, oh, thank God that I have come to the scene so that we're not like these other Christians that argue about scripture, but we alone can set the record straight. So, so like, I think that's a typical attitude. In fact, I remember recently um, somebody I know was, was kind of summarizing some of the typical interpretations of um, prophecy that like are present within the wider Christian world. And there is, you know, all sorts of different viewpoints from, you know, the secret rapture to, you know, the nation, the, the state of Israel being, you know, the temple being rebuilt in Israel is having some sort of sort of, uh, you know, some sort of significance when it comes to prophecy. And this person was like, oh, look at all of these crazy interpretations of prophecy. And it's a good thing that we actually have the correct understanding of prophecy. And um, like, so that we don't get deceived by you know, these various crazy prophetic interpretations. And I, I looked at it and I said, oh, I don't know. Like, actually what that does to me is it encourages me to actually have like a little more humility rather than saying, oh, thank God that we have the right interpretation. Everybody else thinks that as well. Like nobody says, you know, this is a wrong interpretation of prophecy, but I'm going to believe it anyway. Everybody else thinks they have the correct interpretation. So 
that actually gives me more humility and it gives me pause. And it's, that's not to say that I'm just like wishy-washy and be like, well, you know, I must be wrong because everybody else thinks they're right and they're clearly not right. But it just, it just encourages me to be more humble and to realize that, um, I need to like not be arrogant in my claims to know exactly what scripture says or what prophecy, how prophecy is interpreted. Um, you know, there's this book called Desire of Ages, one of very important books for Seventh-day Adventists. And what was so incredibly eye-opening to me was um, Ellen White in that book speaks of the Magi. She speaks of the, the wise men in Jesus' day. They came and they saw Jesus and they gave him gifts. And she actually says there were those among the so-called heathen who had a better understanding of the Old Testament prophecies than the Jewish leaders themselves. And I'm just like, hold on here, time out. Let me take a step back. Let me realize that that calls me to humility, that um, the people who were supposed to be the the stewards of God's holy scriptures who prided themselves on knowing those scriptures actually knew less about those scriptures than people who are so-called heathens. And so let me not be so arrogant or presumptuous as to say, thank God that I came along. Thank God that our, our denomination came along because all these people in 1848, you know, Seventh-day Adventist didn't exist yet. All these people in 1848, they thought they had it figured out, but they were arguing about it. But we came along and in 1863, we set the record straight. No, 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 no. Let me realize that this calls me for, this calls me to humility. Okay. So that's kind of one of the ways that um, people might react to um, this, you know, this, this reality of, of divergence of biblical interpretation. Another way that some might react, which is also pretty popular, is uh, people just say, you know, I'm going to outsource. Um, our interpretation to, to the smart, like educated, powerful people. Um, and you know, this is basically what a lot of, what, what some faith communions do. You know, I'm thinking of the Roman Catholic church, nothing against them. This is basically what they do. So, you know what, I'm just going to let the, the, like the Cardinals, the Pope, the priests, I'm going to let them sort it out and whatever they, they figure out, I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm down with that, you know? Now, it goes without saying that this particular um, posture is, I don't believe, sustainable, um, not the least of which is because so often and so easily what happens is those who are given that kind of authority um, by very nature abuse that authority. So that, that, that's just not sustainable. Now, the third way... That, that people might relate to this, which I think um, is in some ways a reaction to the first two ways. First way being, oh man, thank goodness we have it all figured out. And 
And then secondly, hey, let's let these really powerful, influential, smart people like just tell us what to do. I think the third way is to kind of just reject the whole pursuit altogether. Be like, okay, look at all these different interpretations. They all think they have it right, um, but they're all in disagreement. So what's the point of doing it anyway? Like, it's not going to get us anywhere. Clearly, you see that if people are given the opportunity to kind of like figure it out for themselves, it doesn't work. And so that means it can't happen. And let's just love each other. And like, let's diminish the importance of of scripture. Let's diminish the importance of truth. Um, let's just love each other. And I, I would say that that, of course, is a a very attractive and popular approach today uh, we see within kind of the Western world is there is this this heavy emphasis on pluralism going, of course, to um, the extreme of just complete agnosticism or, you know, apathy about uh, organized religion and scriptural authority and all of these things. So, um, like that's a very attractive option for some people. And to be honest with you, if I were to have to like choose between these three, like that's, that, that seems to be a pretty simple, simple posture to take. It's like, let's just love each other and leave all those complicated things. Like they're just irrelevant. Let's just not worry about that. So like that, that, that to me, again, like there, there's a, a, an attraction to that, but I, it leaves me also feeling empty because here's the deal. Like scripture is so incredibly important to me. It is so transformative. It is so life-giving. It is so motivating and beautiful. It is beautiful. And so I can't, I can't surrender scripture over to like plurality. I can't surrender it over to an attitude that says it's just a bunch of nice stories that you can gain inspiration from. Like there is something much deeper and greater going on with scripture than just that. And I think what I'm going to propose to you, and I've kind of I've kind of hinted at it, is that there is a fourth option, and that is simply this. Scripture has not been given to us for the purpose of coming up with the right answers. That is not the purpose of Scripture. You know, the 19th century, when 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 all this kind of history of all the religious denominations in the United States was, was, um, was developed, including our, our, my own faith community. It was developed within the, the context of modernism. And I don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of this, but basically it was this enlightenment project, which, which kind of pursued truth in very, I'm going to say intellectual and syllogistic terms. What I, what I mean by that 
is truth was primarily an objective exercise that one pursued to come up with the right intellectual answers. And so you approached it not, you approached it not as a, um, not as a, an art lover. You approached it as an art, art critic. You approached it as a scientist. You approached it as a mathematician who was trying to put together a formula so that you could come out with the right answers on the other side. But scripture was not given for simply the modern human being. Scripture was not given simply for us to come up with the right answers. Scripture is not a textbook that we use to kind of like straighten everyone else out. Scripture is a story that God invites us into personally so, so we can encounter his love to greater degrees and learn how to love others to greater degrees, to greater degrees. So it's, it's not, um, it's more testimony. It's more, I, I don't, I want to, I don't want to say it's more, but it is as much art as it is, um, formula. So we, we come to scripture, we come to truth with a desire to be transformed, not simply a desire to be informed. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to create a false dichotomy here, but again, in the 19th century, they were primarily, um, concerned with deriving some sort of objective truth that could be used to prove or disprove certain perspectives. And so Christians adapted this posture as well, which is a great irony because they were, uh, tr they were, they were violently trying to resist kind of the modern influences, which questioned the historicity of the virgin birth and questioned the his historicity of the resurrection and creation. And so they were, they were violently trying to resist the modern project, but they, they responded to modernism with their own modernism. And instead of allowing scripture to, to kind of just stand on its own two feet and be what scripture wants to be, they tried to like fight fire with fire. They tried to fight modernism with modernism and they turned scripture into like a book of proof texts instead of a, a story that God is personally inviting us into where we, where our task is not necessarily to try to prove the rightness or the correctness of our views to others, but to enter into that story and to bathe in the goodness and the glory and the love of Jesus. Okay. Does that make sense, guys? You know, a few weeks ago, I was kind of chewing on these ideas and uh, it just so happened that in my reading of scripture that day, um, 
I was I came to the book of Luke. I came to the end of the book of Luke, I should say. And um, Jesus has obviously been resurrected. He has been um, he's been on the road with the two disciples on on the road to Emmaus, and he he um, he talks with them. They don't know who he is. Uh, he he opens up the scriptures and helps them see what it what's all about. And then by the time they figure out it's him, he just disappears. And they say something very fascinating. They're like, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was explaining the scriptures? They're like, oh, man, there's something going on there. We have encountered the living Christ, and it, it was transformative. So, like... They weren't like, oh, yeah, okay, didn't it make sense? You know, these things, like, add it all up and stuff. They're like, no, 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 we have encountered Jesus. We have, we have experienced him. And so then what happens is they, they run off, and they, and they go to the, the 12 or the 11 at this point in the upper room. And, you know, the, the disciples were up there, like, in great fear. They were anxious. They were confused. They didn't know what was going on. And then these uh, these two disciples, these uh, who are part of the larger you know body of disciples, they came and they share like with with the eleven what's happened. And the disciples are still kind of like uh, I don't know, I'm not so sure. And then suddenly, um, Jesus appears before them, and uh, they don't know how he got in there. They're like they're kind of fearful. They're 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 not sure what they're seeing. They're not sure, sure if it's Jesus. They don't know what he's up to. And um, the first thing Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. So he, he's trying to calm their anxiety. He's trying to calm their heart. He's trying to get them to know that they have nothing to fear. And uh, they thought they were seeing like a ghost. And... Um, I love what happens next. Um, I'm going to read from the message kind of version of this. Um, it says, he continued with them and he said, don't be upset and don't let all these doubting questions take over. In the New King James Version, uh, it literally says, um, don't let your heart doubt. So this was not simply an intellectual, uh, like, an intellectual experience they were having. This was like something that reached the very center of their being. And he's like, don't get wrapped up in these, these emotional, psychological doubts that are going on in, in the very center of your being. He said, don't, don't doubt, don't, don't let them take over. And then he says this, and I love this as I was reading this, I was there on my bed, like the answer to their doubts is, check this out, the answer is, Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me. Look me over from head to toe. So the answer to their doubts was Jesus. The answer to their doubts was not a formula. It was not a syllogism. It was not, you know, an intellectual exercise. Don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of intellectual exercise. We're doing it right now, as a matter of fact. 
But the answer to their doubts was an encounter with the living Jesus. And I don't know, I just got so swept, like like this longing in my heart swept over me. I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to feel Jesus. I want to touch him. I want to I feel him. I want to see him. I want to be, be in his presence. And like, that's a very, very personal thing that you can't transfer. I, I've been saying this lately, like, you can't really transfer truth. You can only testify to truth. So like, again, it's not a, a mathematical formula. It's not a syllogism. It is an encounter with the living Jesus. Now check out what then goes on and, and takes place. What happens um, after he actually eats food, he wants to prove that he's there in the flesh. And so, um, he said, verse 44, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. And he went on, check this out, he went on to opening, to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. So could you imagine like having a Bible study with Jesus? Like he's like, guys, you know, you've been um, kind of not reading the Bible the right way all this time. And I want to show you how to read it. Like I'm going to give you a Bible study. And so that's what he does. And so he gave them this Christ-centered, this Christocentric way to read scripture. And he's like, this is what it's all about. This book is about me. This story is about me. This is fundamentally a book which points to me. And that is the point of it. The point is to have a, a, an experience, an encounter with the living Jesus. It's not about proving your points. It's not about being right. It's not about setting the record straight among all Christians that this is exactly what it means and you better measure up or else you're not, you know, you're not uh, a faithful, devoted student of scripture. So for me, again, that's non-transferable. For me, it is, and I don't want to like, I don't want to deny the important place of communal uh, reading and searching and studying and 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 articulation of scripture. Like it's very important that we do this together in community. But the point is, our interpretations are not to be thrust upon people and used as as a means of coercion or manipulation. Scripture is primarily for the purpose of inviting each of us individually into God's love and his story to greater degrees for the purpose of ultimately helping us to love and be with Jesus wherever he is, which is to say 
When we're with Jesus, when we're going deeper with Jesus, we are going deeper with other people. We are, we are loving the people Jesus loves. Now that is going to have theological and doctrinal content. Please, I want to be clear that I have yet to find a more beautiful and more powerful and more, I would say even this, propositionally true expression of the story of Scripture than what my community of faith has, has, has uncovered. Like, just no doubt about it. For me, for me, this is speaking for me. I have no doubts that this is like, for me, the most faithful reading of scripture that I have come across. Again, with that being said, we have a lot more to learn and there are things that we need to still unlearn. And there are things that we, whether we, um, what, you know, we may not necessarily have them in our quote unquote fundamental beliefs, but they're kind of like, like implicit beliefs that we have that we need to unlearn. And there may be other faith communities that have figured something out better than we have. And so there's a lot to learn. But for me, like it's there. I love it. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's true. It rings true with me. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I believe in the truthfulness of those, of those teachings as much for their beauty as for their correctness. And that's the point. Like truth is not only correct, it is beautiful. And for me, I am as much committed to truth because there's beauty in it as just as much as there is correctness in it. And I think that part has been lost sight of by many of us is that, again, this is a very modern posture, is that we think truth is defined only or exclusively by its intellectual correctness. When in fact, I would say truth is multidimensional. It has relational, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual dimensions to it. And so it's not just, okay, is this true intellectually? It is, does this speak to my being in all of its varied dimensions, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, relationally, socially? And to me, the reason why I am committed to truth and our particular understanding of it, as it's as much as because it just it just resonates with my being, and I can't prove that to anybody else. It's like um, it's like hearing a beautiful song. I can hear that song, I can rejoice in that song, I can glory in that song, but I can't prove to you that that song is like objectively true. I can't prove to you that it is objectively like, um, like authoritative over everybody. I can just know that it resonates with me and it, and it, and it reaches down deep into the very core of my being. And, and I feel to many, in many senses that way with Jesus, like it's as much about how I encounter him and all of his beauty and his, his love and his, like his transformative power as it is to 
its propositional content. You know, John Keats, the, the poet, put it this way, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. So I, I would submit to you that, like, truth is as much encountered in a beautiful painting as it is in a list of beliefs. Like, there, there is truth in beauty. There, there is, like... Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's as much about the beauty of it as it is the correctness of it. And I think one of the problems we've gotten into is like we have erred on the side of the correctness part. And as a result, we have not, we have not like presented truth in its beauty. It's rather interesting that, that, that David in, in the Psalms, he said, one thing have I required of the Lord, and that do I seek. The one thing he's kind of pursued, like when it comes to God, he said, is to behold the beauty of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And he said that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. So, like for David, this was, yeah, this was, this was an experience. Like he wanted to encounter God in his beauty and he wanted to be in his presence. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to draw a, a false dichotomy here because there is intellectual propositional content when it comes to scripture, when it comes to the gospel. But like it's every bit as much about the way I experience the gospel and the good news and truth. You know, Paul in, um, what is it, Romans 8, he says, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So like that's something that you can't really prove. You can't really like put your hands on it. You can't like argue for it. It's just kind of like this. It's it's a spiritual thing. Like there's something that happens when God's spirit reaches out to our spirit. I'm not trying to get like like pantheistic here. I'm not trying to get um, overly mystical. Uh, there is a place for mysticism in the best sense of the term. I'm just quoting Paul. Don't get mad at me. Paul says the spirit, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit. So there's something that takes place that is a spiritual, emotional reality that you can't just like transfer to somebody else. You can't prove to somebody else. And so here's the deal. Like I believe in the authority of scripture because I know that when I go into my bedroom and open up the scriptures and I open up my prayer journal and I'm writing and I'm pouring my heart out to God and I'm reading the scriptures, I know that when I do that, I am going to have an encounter with the living Jesus and I come out the other side of that time with peace and with joy and with love and sometimes sadness because like that's a legitimate 
emotion to experience in the presence of God. And I come out with conviction and I come out with, um, I come out with, yeah, conviction. Sorry, I don't have another flowery word to use. And you know what? I cannot transfer that. I can't prove to you using a very modernistic mechanism. I can't prove to you that I, um, I've encountered truth, that I have read truth. I can't prove that to you. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay because I know the way it has transformed me and I know that I need that and my soul longs for it and, and God is shaping me into his image, the image of Jesus. And, and hopefully by God's grace, I'm becoming a better person through it. And I'm, 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 I'm putting on the, the beauty of God's character and I'm growing in my patience and my love and my forgiveness and my conviction. And like, I don't know, guys, that's, I think that's what it has to be. Um, it has to be that, that truth is beautiful as it, as much as it is correct. And that that's what it becomes more than us trying to prove that we are the ones who correctly interpret scripture. Again, don't get me wrong. Like if you're coming to me and we're, and you're discussing some scriptural idea and I'm like, well, that's not how I understand it. I want to frame it, of course, in very humble terms, but like, I'm not going to be like, ah, okay, okay, good. Like everything goes like, it's like, I guess there's, there's, um, like, there's no way we can arrive at some sort of common agreement that it's like every man for himself or every woman for himself. But like, I can't stress about those things. All I know is what I know and what I experience. And all I know is the song is beautiful to me. And the cookies taste good to me, and I can't prove to you that they should taste good to you. Um, but I can just say, you know what? This is beautiful, and it speaks to me, and it's transformed me. And that's, is, that's, that's how I know it's, it's true as much as anything else. So, yeah, I don't know if this is helpful, but um, hopefully it just gives you something to think about. And, and again, this all relates, I think, to ecclesiology, which is to say the study of the church and, it, and our, our, our practice of, of the church. And it, it all kind of connects to missiology, to mission, in just helping us to realize that truth wins through attraction and testimony and love versus coercion, force, manipulation, control. Like, I think that's kind of what God is trying to do here at the, what I believe are the kind of the, the last days, the end of days, is that God is trying to get a group of people who live by that version of truth, by that understanding of scripture, by that doctrinal theological paradigm where truth is testimony rather than coercion. So 
I don't know. A lot to think about, guys. I've rambled on long enough. Hopefully, it has been stimulating to you. It's not just kind of abstract ideas, but um, has a lot to do with mission. So thanks, guys, for listening, and we will see you again. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Podcast.